Good morning. Pleasure to be with you all this morning. I'm always very thankful when I get the privilege of preaching. Um, I've heard many times throughout the past few weeks how excited um, you guys have been to hear um, the word that I get to share. Um, I'm just very thankful for our church and our elders that put trust in me to um, preach the word. A few quick announcements. One, my name's Christian um, Cunningham. I get the privilege of serving as the student ministries director working with the high school and middle school kids. Um, also, in second service, we have the Sunday school class with Jeff Newman. He's going to be teaching on serving. I'd highly encourage you to stay for that. I've um, sat through a few of those classes as I have time, and they are really excellent. So please take time out of your Sunday to do that. And then lastly, we have a few Bibles in the back. Um, if you need a Bible, raise your hand and someone will get it to you um, because we would love to have you have a Bible in your lap. Let's open up our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 52. We're going to be beginning in verse 13 and work our way through the rest of Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is probably one of the most quoted Old Testament prophecies of Christ and is often used as undeniable proof that the Bible is unified, it has one coherent message, and it's inspired by God. It's often used as an apologetic to say that how could Isaiah know this about the future. While this is a prophecy, I think our familiarity with this passage brings contentment. We think we have a sufficient understanding of Isaiah 53 and oftentimes just blow past it instead of exploring its breadth and depth. While many Christians will often say, this is an awesome passage, and I've heard that many times this morning when people are asked what I was preaching on, Familiarity, I think, with this text hinders us from mining its riches. And so I'm not going to hold back. Hold, hold on to your seatbelts. Let's start reading in Isaiah 52, 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which, they, which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, 
though he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He was hath put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Out of anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted as righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray. Lord, this is a glorious text. We see so clearly that the person and work of Jesus Christ, and Lord, help us to behold your servant, Jesus. Help us to worship him better. Help us to exalt him, to praise him, to delight in him, to see and savor him. Lord, we know that our hearts are often so wandering. Help us to remember your gospel each day and help us to exalt your son in our daily lives. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. So this text breaks up into five poetic stanzas of three verses each. If you look with me at chapter 52, verse 13, this first begins with the exaltation of the servant, and it's specifically tied to a priestly work of sprinkling the nations. We see that in verse 15. The second unit is chapter 53, verses 1 through 3, and this is tied to a future Davidic king that is rejected by the people. Then in verses 4 through 6, we have the why. Why does the servant suffer? What's the, the reason behind his suffering? Verses 7 through 9 form the fourth stanza, and they reveal to us that this servant is different than any other sacrifice. He let himself die. Then the last three verses again reveal an exaltation and even a resurrection of the servant of Yahweh. So this brings us to our main point. The servant of Yahweh will be an exalted priest, will be a suffering king, will be an atoning sacrifice, will be a willing lamb, and will be a resurrected intercessor. Let me say that again. The servant of Yahweh will be an exalted priest, will be a suffering king, will be an atoning sacrifice, will be a willing lamb, and will be a resurrected inter intercessor. So before we move to the bulk of the sermon, I want to briefly comment on kind of what's working through my mind as I was approaching this text. I am under the assumption that Isaiah was a good interpreter of the Bible. I am under the assumption that Isaiah read the Old Testament. I am under the assumption that he noticed things. He noticed patterns throughout the Old Testament. He noticed 
faults with the sacrificial system, paid attention to these things, and used those to inform his predictions of the future. Isaiah was paying careful attention to the past, the present, his experience with Israel in exile, and the future. He's looking back at the, the, the priesthood, the sacrifices, the promises God made to David, and projecting them into the future to give hope to a nation in exile. All of these things are important as we approach this text, because if you've ever read the book of Isaiah, parts of it get really weird. When we get to 52, we're like, cool, Jesus, and kind of skip through it. But there is a lot of detail here that needs to be explored. Where does Isaiah come to these conclusions? What is Isaiah's own interpretive grid for interpreting the Old Testament? Are there places in earlier scripture where Isaiah is drawing these conclusions? Yes, and let's look to our first main point. The servant of Yahweh will be an exalted priest. Let's read verses 13 through 15 in Isaiah 52 again. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He will be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. So the text begins with Yahweh exalting his servant. The servant is high and lifted up and placed in a royal position. And this exalted work seems to be tied to the servant's wisdom. He acts wisely and therefore he's lifted up. So what exalts the servant? What is the wise action he takes? Look with me at verse 14. It answers this question. But there is a small debate on how to translate this verse. In my ESV, it says that his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. But Gentry, Peter Gentry, argues that it should be translated this. Just as there were many who were astonished at him, so his anointing was beyond that of men and his form beyond that of the sons of men. So he shall sprinkle many nations. So either the passage is talking about people being astonished because of how marred he was, which is true because of verses 1 through 3, or how anointed he was, which is true because he sprinkles the nations, which is a priestly work. I favor the translation anointed, but both work in this text. So if we take the translation anointed, the text seems to indicate that many people are astonished at the servant for two reasons. First, the servant's anointing and form was beyond that of men. Second, he sprinkles many nations. There's only one office in the entire Old Testament where someone is anointed, then sprinkles something after that anointing, and that is the high priest. Even those that don't affirm the anointed translation see sprinkling as an allusion to the high priestly work, but I think this other translation strengthens this. Leviticus 21.10 indicates that an anointing of high priest would designate a man into the office of high priest, a priest over the priest, a higher and greater office. And what was unique about the high priest? What was one thing the high priest did that nobody else could do in the Old Testament? That was to perform the day of atonement. Leviticus 16.15 helps us here. 
Then the high priest shall kill the goat of the sin offering, that is for the people, bring its blood inside the veil, and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it. That is the same Hebrew word as Isaiah 52. Sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. So Isaiah is turning on our ears and our minds to look back to the Day of Atonement and show a linguistic connection between this new anointed servant, the high priest. To understand how Isaiah is using these patterns and projecting these types into the future, we need to look back at Leviticus 16. So I'll work through this in three questions. First, what was the Day of Atonement? Second, what did the Day of Atonement symbolize? And third, how does the Day of Atonement connect to the servant of Yahweh's priestly work? So first, what was the Day of Atonement? The Day of Atonement ceremony is recorded in Leviticus 16. The high priest was to bring the animals for the burnt offering and all his priestly garments. He takes two goats and a bull, begins the Day of Atonement ceremony by sacrificing a bull and atoning for his own sin first. His own sin needed to be cleansed before he went before God's throne to represent the people. So after he sacrifices the bull for himself, there are two goats. He casts lots to figure out which one has a specific role or function. He would then take a censer and burn incense to cover the mercy seat so that he might not die, the text says. And I think the implication was to cover God's presence from uh, destroying him in all of his glory. Anyway, moving on. The implication is the incense covered God just like he did in the Exodus. So he takes the blood of the bull, sprinkles it seven times on the mercy seat. After that, he sacrifices one goat and sprinkles the blood on the mercy seat again, this time for the sins of Israel. He then takes the live goat, confesses the sins of Israel on this goat, and exiles it into the wilderness. So that's a very short summary of the Day of Atonement ceremony in Leviticus 16. Second, what did the Day of Atonement symbolize? If you're ever wanting to read a book on Leviticus, which probably most of you won't, but it's a really good book, I promise. Who Shall Ascend the Mountain of the Lord is gripping and amazing. Any good things I have to say about Leviticus come from that book. It's excellent. He argues this about the Day of Atonement. Without question, the Day of Atonement was at the heart of Israel's calendar and life. It is also the structural and thematic center of the whole Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses. The literary summit to which and from which the narrative drama ascends and descends. What made this ceremony so central and so important? Other than literary features, the thematic and theological implications are staggering. Moses, the author of Leviticus, so crafted the first five books that the tabernacle and the temple actually connects to the Garden of Eden. The mercy seat in Leviticus 16 was the space above the Ark of the Covenant where God's throne room descended. The mercy seat was between the two angels on the Ark of the Covenant, and it was God's footstool. So in Leviticus 16, we have a high priest representing Israel entering into God's earthly throne. After Adam sinned, he was exiled out of the Garden of Eden, out of God's temple presence. Now the high priest is re-entering a new garden 
and a new temple presence. So the priest is symbolic of Adam, re-entering the Garden of Eden, cleansing and atoning for the sin of Adam, thereby accomplishing access to God's presence, right? Well, not really. The high priest doesn't really see God because of the incense burning. Only the high priest can enter, and only once a year, not the whole people. The repetitive nature of the Day of Atonement every year showed that something greater needed to happen. Instead of a cleansing of God's earthly temple, there must be a greater high priest that does a cosmic cleansing of God's heavenly temple of the whole world. There needs to be a greater sacrifice that will restore man to the Garden of Eden. So we can easily summarize it in three broad movements. The high priest cleansed God's people in God's house. The high priest approached the divine presence and re-entered the Garden of Eden. So Isaiah is arguing here that the high priest will achieve a greater sprinkling of the nations because of his greater anointing. And instead of a temporary cleansing of God's people and house that needed to be repeated, the servant will accomplish a permanent cleansing of God's people and house. Instead of just God's earthly temple, we have the cleansing of God's heavenly temple of the entire cosmos. Jesus cleanses the whole universe with his own blood, which includes drawing the many nations into the family of God. Instead of a temporary re-entering, there is going to be an eternal entering of the new Garden of Eden. Hebrews argues the same thing. Let me read Hebrews 9, 23 through 28. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor is it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. That is why many are astonished. That is why kings shut their mouths at this exalted servant who does a greater priestly work and accomplishes a greater salvation than any Old Testament bull or any Old Testament high priest ever could. This servant is going to accomplish the gospel. This sprinkling accomplishes salvation for the nations, not just Israel. All nations are covered and cleansed for their sin. All sins will be cast into the wilderness, never to be remembered again. The servant of Yahweh will be an exalted priest. But that's not all he will be. This brings us to our second point. The servant of Yahweh will be a suffering king. Let's look at Isaiah 53, 1 through 3 together. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant 
like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or beauty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised. We esteemed him not. So this stanza begins with two questions. The first question seems to imply that many will see this work. It'll be right before their eyes, but they won't believe it. It's too counterintuitive. It doesn't make sense. And it is in that unbelief that they reject him, that they despise him. They see his work, but it's done in such a way that it doesn't seem like an exalted priest. In a sense, the astonishment is so great that no one can believe without an act of God himself. And that's what the second question is talking about. The first time the language arm of the Lord is used in the entire Bible is Exodus 6, when God was promising to bring Israel out of exile in Egypt. So it is in Exodus 6 where we see the mighty hand and outstretched arm of God to save Israel out of the Exodus. And it's as if Isaiah is saying there needs to be a greater Exodus again to show us the glory and the greatness of the high priest's work. No one will believe this astonishing work because they despise and reject the servant. Later we will see that it is in this rejection and suffering of the servant that actually accomplishes this work. But the first two questions say that God's mighty and strong arm that seeks salvation will need to come back and save us again in a greater way. We need something greater than the ten plagues to reveal the mighty hand of God. And still, we need a greater servant than Moses to lead us out of a greater slavery than Egypt. But we're still left with the question, who is this servant? What does he look like? Well, if you look at the phrase, root out of dry ground or young plant, Isaiah is quoting himself. In Isaiah 11, these two terms are used twice to describe a future David. Let's read Isaiah 11, 1 through 10. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, David's father, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom, the servant shall act wisely, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. Verse 7, the cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse 
who shall be as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. So you, do you see the connections here that Isaiah is making? The word root in Isaiah 53, 2 is the same one in verse 1 and 10 here in Isaiah 11. Isaiah intended us to see this connection and draw this conclusion. The servant of Yahweh is a new David. He is a new growth coming out of the stump of Jesse. He is going to be a new and greater Davidic king. He will have the spirit of God resting on him. Remember Jesus' baptism? The servant of Yahweh is a new Davidic king who will rule the nations like the Davidic king should have with righteousness and justice. He is the ideal king that reigns in the way all past Davidic kings should have reigned. He reigns with justice and follows the covenant commands. But that's not all. Did you catch what happened in verses 6 through 10? What's significant about a wolf and a lamb dwelling together or a baby putting their hand in a cobra's den? What's the significance? This Davidic king will not only institute a greater kingdom, he will also bring the peace that the Garden of Eden had. He will reinstitute a new Garden of Eden paradise. The rule and reign of God will cover the whole world, and the knowledge of God will be over all nations as the waters cover the sea. These are high and glorious truths that Isaiah is connecting to our servant in the passage. But what are we doing in this story? What are we doing in this drama? Are we bowing down in our knees in worship? No. Isaiah tells us that this king, this glorious king, that comes for his people will be hated, will be rejected. He accomplishes this amazing priestly work, will reign as king, as a good king, and justice and righteousness, and we reject him. We hate him. It seems to me the servant of Yahweh, the Davidic king, will bring about the kingdom of God and reign over the world, but he must suffer before he reigns. You remember when Jesus says the Son of Man must suffer? Here is probably one of the passages Jesus had in mind. Even the suffering of the Davidic king is not new to Isaiah. David himself noticed this pattern in his own life and in earlier scripture. Joseph suffered at the hands of his brother, brothers in Potiphar, went to prison, and then became exalted as the prince over Egypt. Moses suffered at the hands of the Israelites before God exalted him. David suffered at the hands of Saul before God exalted him. And he even suffered at the hands of his own son, Absalom. When we read Psalms like Psalm 3 and Psalm 22, David is telling us that the future king from his own line, the true Davidic king, will suffer in greater ways than David himself did. So how can we tie the life of the historical David to this greater servant of Yahweh? Well, we mentioned several, but to further capitalize this point, the phrase, my servant, only talks about five characters in the Old Testament. Without exception, it is mostly David. On top of the connections between Isaiah 11, we can draw the following conclusions. Isaiah learned from the life of Joseph, the life of Moses, the life of David, and the Psalms, 
that the future king from David's line would suffer before he will reign as the exalted king. This king will bring the new creation and the new covenant in himself to reign as a new Adam over the kingdom of God only after he suffers. But why does he suffer? Why is that important in our story? With that, we'll move to the third point. The servant of Yahweh will be an atoning sacrifice. This brings us to verses four through six. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, Yet we esteemed him, stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So why does the Davidic king suffer? What is the point? The Davidic king, the servant of Yahweh, does not suffer for his own sins. The Davidic king doesn't suffer for anything he did. The Davidic king suffers in the place of his people. So the high priest is going before the throne of God and bearing the punishment that his people deserve. Notice the change here, too. If you read through verses 1 through 3, it is the people acting. They are rejecting. But who is the actor in verses 4 through 6? God. Yahweh himself is placing all of his judgment on the servant. All of the judgment that we deserved is placed on the servant in our place. The language of pierce, crush, chastisement are all connected to the fall. The sufferings and sorrows, the discipline and correction, the crushing is all connected to our sin. This servant is so glorious, so amazing that he suffers not for his own sins, but for the sins of others, for your sins. This servant is representing you when he dies. This servant is representing you as he cleanses the universe with the sprinkling of his own blood. The servant of Yahweh suffers the pain and judgment from God himself. The servant of Yahweh takes the punishment that we deserve and places it on himself. This again connects us to Leviticus 16. You remember the two goats? One sprinkled on the mercy seat for atoning the sins of the people, the other cast into exile. So let us think through these two goats. First, I think these need to be taken as a set. Leviticus 16 takes a long time to tie them together. The only difference between the two is this. The lot cast right before their commission was set. Jewish tradition even reveals that the two goats had to be identical in every single way. They are a package and seem to be two sides of God's redeeming work. One sign is entrance and the other is expulsion. One goat enters into the presence of God and is killed for the cleansing of his blood. The other is cast out of God's house, out of Israel, and into the wilderness. So here's what I think is going on. Both goats are without blemish, symbolic of our own lives without sin and blemish, wholeheartedly devoted to God. One goat enters into God's presence as our substitute, 
He represents us and would cleanse the temple from all defilement and all sin. And then he would be, the flesh would be burned as a symbol of appeasing God's wrath. The scapegoat is cast out because the high priest confessed all the sins and put it out of the, the presence of God. This was to suffer the torments of exile, being cast out into the wilderness. So the scapegoat represents the punishment of sin for Israel, the punishment Adam received, casting out of the garden. Both point forward to Christ. It is the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all of our sin and the whole cosmos of sin. The wrath of God is satisfied in Christ's death. More than that, he also bears all the sins of his people and bears exile from God as he is forsaken and smitten. This is so central to our understanding of the gospel. Throughout the New Testament, there are many descriptions or metaphors that describe what Jesus did on the cross, but it is all centered around the term penal substitution. The penalty that we deserved was taken from us and placed on this servant. All of our sins, all the wrath that God had against our sin justly was placed on the servant. And he bore all the pain and suffering that we deserved. The penalty is substituted and placed on Jesus. And all we must do is believe. Believe in the servant. Believe and receive. The judgment that we deserve was placed on Yahweh's servant, Jesus Christ. It is in his death on the cross that he absorbs all of God's wrath. Like the two goats in the Day of Atonement, Christ took on God's wrath by bearing all of our sins, and Jesus' death on the cross accomplished what the blood of goats and bulls could never do, full and final forgiveness of sins. Even more than that, think about what we just talked about with the high priest. It seems to imply that the death of the servant sheds the blood necessary for that same servant to sprinkle the blood to cleanse the nation. So it's the blood of Jesus as the sacrifice that cleanses us from sin, but he also offers that same blood as the high priest. So to put it succinctly, Jesus is the offerer as the high priest and the offering himself. So we saw that the servant of Yahweh first would be an exalted priest, a suffering king, and an atoning sacrifice. Let's move now to our fourth main point. The servant of Yahweh will be a willing lamb, verses 7 through 9. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. They made his grave with the wicked, with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So to quickly recap where we've been, we have seen the servant of Yahweh being an exalted priest that sprinkles and redeems the nations through a cosmic cleansing of the whole universe. We have seen that the servant of Yahweh will be a suffering king that reigns as David's greater son. But he truly 
cleanses the people from sin. These three points are vital for understanding this fourth one. The suffering patterns in the life of Joseph, Moses, and David all culminate in this suffering to the point of death. All of it does. So we have thematic repetition of verses 1 through 3, where the suffering leads to death. But as the servant suffers, notice carefully what happens here. What does he do? Nothing. He lets it happen. He goes willingly. He knows it is his duty to perform this sacrifice on behalf of the people. He bears all the sin as a willing lamb, which functions as a major contrast to Old Testament sacrifices. I think here we see the theological genius of Isaiah. The blood of the sacrifices functioned as a substitute. We've seen that. They functioned as a representative on behalf of the people. But in what way can a goat or a bull represent a man? In what way can a goat led by leash force represent people that willingly desire to sin? It is not though our sins are accidental or unintentional. We want to sin. We desire to sin. So our substitute must go to the cross and suffer willingly. In order to have a perfect substitute, the servant needed to desire to bear our sins and suffer. In other words, just as we willingly sin, Jesus needed to willingly bear our sins on the cross. Uh, Matyer states in his commentary this way, it is the very heart of our sinfulness that we sin because we want to. Because of this, no animal can do more than a picture. Only a person can substitute for a person. Only a consenting will can substitute for our rebellious will. He adds what no other ever did or could, the will to accept and submit to the role as substitute. So it's not as though Jesus was forced or coerced to pay for your sin. Jesus is a willing Savior. He is a seeking Savior. Jesus is God in himself, put on human flesh, came down from the throne of heaven, in one sense, to die for you, to pay for your sin, to bring you back out of exile and judgment into the presence of God, finally and fully. That's what Jesus did for you. Jesus was not a victim on the cross. Jesus went to the cross willingly, suffered for his people. The two goats in the day of atonement didn't have a choice. Jesus willingly went to the cross, absorbed God's wrath, and suffered to the point of death. Who else would suffer like that for us? After his death, we see his body is buried in a rich man's grave. After all the irony we've seen in this passage, an exalted priest suffering as a king. All this irony shows that the servant ends his life as a criminal, but also his body is in a rich man's grave. With that, we can move to our final point. The servant of Yahweh will be a resurrected intercessor. Verses 10 through 12. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt 
He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So the servant of Yahweh started the text as an exalted priest that sprinkles and redeems, goes through the suffering, and is exalted once again. But before we get there, look at verse 10. It begins by saying, it was the will of the Lord to crush him, and then ends with the Lord prospering his hand. It's as if verse 10 is a hinge point to tell us that the suffering is not the end of the story. The death of the servant is not the end. How can someone die in verse 9 and then verse 10 see his offspring? There's only one real answer to this question. The servant will be resurrected. It was the will of God to put the servant to grief and suffer. Yes, the Lord wants the servant to suffer and make a guilt offering. It ties us back to the sacrificial system, and we've seen all this, but Isaiah adds new material in verse 10. He shall see his offspring. God shall prolong the days of the servant, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in the servant's hand. He doesn't stay dead. He rises again. I think Isaiah is foreseeing the resurrection of the servant here in this text and reign as a Davidic king. Do you remember the promises that God made to David in 2 Samuel 7? It says that there will not cease to be a king on the Davidic throne. What does Isaiah say? He shall prolong his days. So once again, the promises God made to David are used by Isaiah to inform the servant of Yahweh's work. The servant suffers for his people. He defeats death as God's warrior king. The offspring of the servant seems to be the one that the servant died for. The servant suffers for his people, dies for them, accomplishes their salvation, rises from the dead, makes them his offspring and his family. The New Testament authors frequently describe us as adopted sons into God's family through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. All of this in Isaiah 53. In verse 11, the servant's death and suffering accomplish the salvation of many. But notice, the servant doesn't simply bear the punishment of an iniquity of others. He doesn't just take the wrath of God on himself. He gives his offspring something. Righteousness. So there are two sides to this language of justification. Yes, God cleanses us from our sin. Yes, it's just as if I had never sinned. But more than that, he gives us his righteousness. All of that here in Isaiah 53. So to conclude this glorious song, all that we've seen, Isaiah puts a massive therefore in verse 12. What does all this accomplish? Why? 
What is the reason for the servant's death and resurrection? What purpose and end does the cosmic cleansing of the universe by a blood of a new and greater high priest accomplished by an eternal Davidic king suffering death and resurrection, which, by the way, reverses the curse and gives reentry into the Garden of Eden? Why? What's the purpose of all of this? Well, you. I know I've been a little picky about translations, but verse 12 should be translate, I will allocate him the many. You are the servant's portion. The portion and spoil that the suffering warrior king receives is you. You are Jesus' inheritance that he receives once he is resurrected. And even more than that, I think there's even greater implications. All the promises and blessings that are applied to Christ because of his righteous life are applied to you. He shares all the benefits of his righteousness with you. Every promise in the Old Testament and the New is yes and amen in Jesus Christ. All is accomplished. All is finished. And all is given to you. All spiritual blessings are given by what Jesus did on the cross for you. That is the spoil. That is why he poured out his soul to death. That is why he was numbered with the transgressions. All promises find their climactic fulfillment in Jesus Christ. He gives you access to the divine throne room of God in heaven, greater than any high priest could ever imagine in the Old Testament. Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross gives you access to a greater Garden of Eden paradise than Adam ever did see. Jesus' death fulfills all the patterns and expectations. So I call you, with Isaiah, believe in the servant. Put your trials and worries in perspective of the cosmic, earth-shattering event of the resurrection of Jesus. But he's still not done. The last line of verse 12. He makes intercession for his transgressors. Jesus died. He rose on the third day. He ascended into heaven and is now seated at the right hand of the Father and is a new mediator between God and man. Just as Moses continued to go before God over and over again, representing the people when they sinned, Jesus, by his own blood, says, I covered that sin. And when you sin again, he's right there with blood in his hand saying, I covered that sin as well. Anytime we sin, Jesus is there reminding that he died for that sin. So what do we do for application? Well, there really is only one. To behold the servant. Gaze at him in all of his beauty. Delight in his work. Praise him. Worship in him in splendor. It is Jesus Christ, risen, seated at the right hand of the Father. If you don't know Jesus, he is the servant who pays the penalty for your sin and died on the cross for you. And if you do know Jesus, preach the gospel. Evangelize to coworkers, friends, and family. Preach the gospel to yourself. Remind yourself each day that when you sin, Jesus covers it. Remind yourself that when your friend sins against you, Jesus covered that as well. 
if they're a believer. Remind yourself of the depth and greatness of Jesus' work on the cross. Let's pray. Lord, it's hard not to be overwhelmed in this moment. All the way back in Isaiah's time, all of this was prophesied, and you filled it all. Lord, we will never be able to plumb the depths of what you've done on the cross, and I hope that my meager attempt this morning helps all of us to exalt the King and see him in all his beauty. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.